Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential guide to the week's happenings in science. I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist's News Editor. And I'm Timothy Revel, New Scientist's Comment and Culture Editor. This week, we'll be hearing from journalist Michael Marshall about newly described fossils that suggest animals first existed hundreds of millions of years earlier than previously thought. We'll also be chatting with our reporter, Leah Crane, over the possibility that black holes can force some stars to collide so forcefully that they shine brighter than almost any other known objects in the universe. And closer to home, we'll be looking at how the UK is creating the perfect conditions for the coronavirus to evolve to evade our vaccines. But first... Take advantage of our summer sale and let New Scientist Academy's science online courses take you on an inspiring journey of learning. Whether into the mysteries of the universe, the intricacies of the human brain, or the vital complexities of our immune systems. These interactive online courses are designed to be not just educational, but accessible and entertaining too. You can start and finish each one whenever you like and work through at your own pace, guided by tutorials from world-renowned experts in their respective fields. Why not sign up now and explore the wonders of science this summer? With our summer sale, you can save up to £100 off the standard rate. Just go to newscientist.com slash courses. First off, to coronavirus. The UK is bracing itself in anticipation of what the effects will be after it removed many of the COVID-19 restrictions on the 19th of July. In England, for example, the restrictions are now essentially gone. Now, Penny, this hasn't yet led to an explosion of cases, but it does seem the conditions could be particularly perilous for the evolution of new variants. Yeah, so we're still waiting um, to see what happens about the numbers following the 19th of July. We'll probably start seeing an uptick soon. Um, In fact, just as a sort of side note, as we record this for the last week or so, um, the number of new infections have been declining um, in the UK. There's a number of reasons why that might be the case, some of them real, some of them um, sort of artefacts in reporting. Um, We go through that in an article on the website. But the thing that's worth noting is that even though there has been a slight decline each day, um, the numbers of of current infections in the UK are still very high. And that's Mm -hmm. a problem. So this week, we published an in-depth report by reporter Michael LePage that reveals that the conditions in the UK right now mean that it's a perfectly tuned danger zone for virus evolution, with just the right conditions to encourage the evolution of something that's known as an escape variant. That doesn't sound good. What, what is it? 
Yeah, you're right. It's pretty bad. Um, So what we mean by the term escape variant is um, variants of a virus that have acquired genetic mutations that enable them to better evade our immune responses. So that can mean two things, that this kind of variant could be better at beating our body's own natural response to the virus, but also perhaps that such variants could also be better at evading the strong immune responses that we get uh, when we have a vaccine. Yeah, that doesn't sound great, but there are quite a lot of coulds in there. Is this really a case of could or are these scape variants already evolving? So um, they seem to be. uh, The Mm. beta, gamma and delta variants all appear to evade the immune system to some extent. um, And that's bad in itself. But we also worry that there could be new variants that would be even better at evading the immune system. And there's real concern that the UK is, is creating the ideal selection pressures to push such variants to evolve. That's because we have both a very high level of infections at the moment, like I said. But we've also got many people in the UK right now who are partially but not fully immune to the virus. What does that mean to be partially immune to the virus? Yeah, so there's a few ways um, that you might be partially immune. So you may have been infected a while back, but now your immunity is starting to fade. You may only have had one dose of the vaccine so far, or perhaps you've been infected or fully vaccinated, but your body didn't respond that strongly to it. So you don't have the the full complement of lots of antibodies to protect you. And so what's so dangerous about that is that it provides the virus with ample opportunities to encounter the antibodies that we normally, our body uses to fight it. And so that creates an an evolutionary environment in which there's a strong selective pressure for the virus to acquire mutations that help it to better evade these antibodies and our immune systems in the future. And so it might help to think about this as a bit like uh, antibacterial resistance, which is another form of evolution in medicine that we, we think about quite a lot. When you go on a course of antibiotics, doctors will always encourage you to finish the whole course of drugs, because that's if you don't fully wipe out your infection you give the bacteria a chance to evolve resistance to those drugs and then on top of that the more freely we overuse antibiotics prescribing them when they're not needed and everybody taking them all the time that just gives more opportunity for this to happen right so there's more opportunity that's why it's so worrying that the infection rate in the uk is so high right now yeah, that, that's one of the reasons it's, it's worrying that the infection rate is so high. Um, the more virus that is freely circulating, the more evolution of variants we can expect. And that's really something that the rest of the world isn't going to be thanking the UK for. Right. So, I mean, it's good to tell it how it is. But are there any reasons for us to be hopeful in this situation? Um, a bit. Um, you know, I can temper the doom. Um, <laughs> maybe not not give you a huge amount of hope. But, but, like uh, chocolate, where tempered doom is particularly tasty? Or? <laughs> um, so fortunately, researchers think it will actually take quite some time for coronavirus variants to evolve that can fully evade our vaccines. So, so that's a bit of a relief mm. if, if that turns out to be true. <laughs> Delayed it, doom. Yeah, exactly. It's doom on a slightly further away horizon. In the meantime, um, being vaccinated should still prevent most people from developing severe symptoms or, and dying. So, so that's pretty good news. And after that, we're hoping that booster shots should be able to help. 
But of course, the UK is one of a relatively small group of wealthy, lucky nations with high vaccination rates. And new variants will have much worse impacts in the majority of nations that are still largely unvaccinated. And it's doubly unfair for them, really. Not only have the wealthy nations had many more vaccine doses so far, all those countries that have lost out would then suffer far worse casualties if escape variants do emerge. So is there anything that countries like the UK could be doing to stop this from happening? Yeah, so I don't think the answers here will surprise you. We need to get infection numbers way down to reduce the chance for evolution. Um, Currently, the government doesn't seem to have any plans to do this. But if you do think about evolutionary principles, this is absolutely necessary. We do also need to be globally responsible and take actions to prevent the spread of new variants to other nations and to really speed up the vaccination efforts worldwide in less wealthy places. Now, uh, there was a very cool paper out this week about a special sort of cosmic smash-up that can happen when two celestial objects collide. And our physics and space reporter, Leia Crane, has been looking into it. Hi, Leia. Hey, Tim. How are you? Yeah, good. So this paper is all about stars that orbit black holes, right? What's what's so special about them? So a few things are special about these particular types of stars, but the main one is that because of the extreme gravity of a black hole, they can move super fast. Super fast? How fast are we talking? (laughs) So the fastest one we've actually measured was about 8% the speed of light, Uh Uh, but that's around our own galaxy's black hole, which is relatively small. And around bigger black holes, it could be a significant fraction of the speed of light. Oh, a significant fraction. That does sound fast. But isn't there a bit of an issue? Don't when the stars get close to black holes that they get shredded up and spaghettified? Doesn't that happen here? Yeah, so that happens around a lot of black holes, but only up to a certain size, which is sort of counterintuitive. But the reason for that is that you have to get pretty close to the center of a black hole to get ripped apart like that. And the most massive black holes are also so big that it's not possible to get all that close without falling in. So some of them just get accelerated really fast and not shredded. And if they get too close to the black hole, they just get swallowed whole. Okay, I I guess better to be swallowed whole than spaghettified. (laughs) Um, So so what's new? What, What have we learned recently about these stars? So anytime you've got things moving that fast, at least for me, one of the first thoughts is what would happen if they smashed together? <laughs> and that's what these researchers calculated. Of course they did. So don't keep us in suspense. What what would happen if they smashed together? Well, basically, it would be a really huge explosion. Like a supernova huge explosion? Yeah, it would look a lot like a supernova, but it would happen mm. a lot faster. So we would be able to tell the difference. But the fastest moving stars, if they smash together could create an explosion even brighter than the brightest supernovae, according to these researchers. That is really, really cool. So how often would something like this happen? It depends on the size of the black hole. For one, about 100 million times the mass of the sun, it could be as often as five a year. But as the black hole gets bigger, the rate of these collisions gets lower quickly, and it goes down to one every 50 years or so, or even more rare. Okay, well, that that doesn't seem so rare to me. I mean, with like supernovas in our own galaxy, that we only see them once every 50 to 100 years. So could we be seeing these collisions all over the place? Actually, not really. The problem is that they only happen around the very biggest black holes. So in many galaxies, we wouldn't expect any of these sorts of collisions. So it turns out we'd still expect them to be pretty rare 
a lot more rare than supernovae. Okay, but have we ever seen one? Not as far as re- researchers know, although it's possible that we've seen one and just not known what it was. But we'd really only be able to see the very brightest ones, which means they're even harder to spot than just being rare. Oh, this is disappointing. I feel like we need to see one of these. I mean, do researchers think we ever will? Yeah, thankfully, yes. Um, There's an observatory called the Vera Rubin Observatory that's being built in Chile right now. It's going to be extra good at looking for transient events, which are things in the sky that get bright and then fade away. So hopefully we'll be able to find these stellar collisions with that. Okay, great. When does that turn on? So it's planned to turn on in late 2022 and start taking science data in 2023. We interrupt this podcast to bring you news of a new audio product from New Scientist. Yes, subscribers are now able to listen to stories from the world's leading science and technology weekly through the app. We've teamed up with audio production company Sound Understanding to bring you professionally voiced and recorded versions of stories from the magazine each week. It's the exact same content, but in spoken form. It's easy to take part in the New Scientist audio experience. Just go to newscientist.com app. Download the issue and explore. Wherever you see a headphones icon, that's where audio content is available and it's all free to subscribers. We hope you enjoy the new app. Check it out and happy listening. Next up, we've got journalist Michael Marshall with news of the earliest fossil animals ever found. That sounds like a really big deal, Mike. Uh, I think it probably is, yes. Often I... um write stories about, you know, we found a fossil of this thing and it's a bit earlier than we thought. And then that's kind of the end of the the, the, <laughs> the finding. Whereas in this case, it's a lot earlier and it seems like it might be quite transformational in several ways. So what's happened is that researcher Elizabeth Turner has discovered ancient animal remains in Canada that date back to 890 million years ago. So that's 350 million years earlier than any of the other, well, confirmed animal fossils that we already had. So that's really amazing. What kind of animals are we talking about here? So we are talking about sponges, but they're not sort of very obviously recognisable fossil sponges. I think most of us, if we saw these, wouldn't think sponge. What Turner found with these uh, mesh-like patterns of minerals, and what these seem to be is the preserved remains of the networks of protein that would have been left behind by the sponges. Right. And just to be clear for those of us who are a bit rusty on our basal animal lineages, um, sponges are a type of simple animal, right? Yes, that's right. So sponges are very possibly the first group that branched from the animal family tree, or at least one of the very earliest. So that unlike a lot of other animals, they don't have legs or eyes. Uh, they spend most of their time being quite stationary. They are, they're filter feeders, but they are animals. So like us, they have multiple cells, they have distinct tissues. And unlike plants, they can't produce their own food, they have to eat. One of the things that distinguishes them from us, and which is crucial here, is that they have not exactly a skeleton, but a skeleton-like thing that's made out of a protein called spongin. And what Turner is saying is that it's the spongin that has been, in a kind of indirect way, preserved in these trace fossils. I'm always amazed at how paleontologists are able to look at these tiny patterns in rocks and work out that they were once part of a specific kind of living thing. Just how certain can we be that these marks on a rock really 
do mean that this was the skeleton of an ancient sponge? Oh, I'm often sort of baffled you know, when someone shows me this sort of seemingly nondescript shape and says, oh, you know, that's definitely a stone tool made by a Neanderthal, or, you know, that's definitely, you know, the, the part of the head of a trilobite. Like, okay. <laughs> but um, I spoke, so I spoke to two sort of other experts in paleontology, and they were both very supportive of this. And I think one of the key things is that there are more recent sponge fossils where the same kinds of traces are found and they're found in association with other bits of the sponge so that sort of give that so that sort of gives you a giveaway that this sort of pattern is actually really characteristic of sponges mm. i think what also helps is that this finding doesn't come out of the blue so yeah, as we said, these fossils are 350 million years older than um, previous fossil evidence of sponges. But the age of them actually fits quite nicely with molecular clock estimates for when animals first emerge. So that's the approach that sort of dispenses with fossils and instead uses DNA from living animals to figure out how distantly related they are and therefore you know, roughly when each group might have emerged, when these sort of key evolutionary events happened. Great. Um, so where does that leave us? Does this mean sponges were the first multicellular animals to exist? Uh, we absolutely can't say that yet, uh, partly because there may simply have been something earlier that we haven't yet found preserved. Particularly, mm. uh, What makes it difficult is that, of course, these are soft-bodied animals that don't preserve terribly well. We also know that there's another kind of simple animal called comb jellies which superficially resemble jellyfish although they're not actually jellyfish they're also a very early branch of the animal family tree and there's uh, a debate that's been going on for about a decade about which of them branched first it's traditionally thought that sponges were the were the first because they seem so much simpler but some genetic evidence has suggested that it might actually have been the comb jellies i have to say i don't think this new discovery is really going to settle that debate partly because it turns on genetics anyway but also because it may well be that comb jellies also existed 890 million years ago and because they're soft-bodied animals we just don't have any traces of them or at least none that we've recognized yet but although we can't sort of necessarily solve that question i think what these sponge fossils do offer us is some twists to the story of how animals first emerged on earth so there's a long-standing idea that animals evolved after the, the levels of oxygen in, on the planet started to rise, not quite to modern levels, but to sort of vaguely livable levels. So the idea is that before, while oxygen levels were, were so low, animals just couldn't have existed. But the thing is, that big rise in oxygen levels started around about 800 million years or, or so ago. And these sponge fossils are earlier than that. So that suggests that perhaps the very earliest animals may have been able to survive in very low oxygen environments. And it may be that actually the the later rise in oxygen, perhaps it led to the diversification of animals, you know, the, the, the sort of the great flowering of animals that we eventually saw in the Cambrian period beginning 541 million years ago. But perhaps the early origin, at least the, the initial origin, perhaps wasn't powered by oxygen at all. Great. Thanks for that, Mike. And, and for more on the actual origins of all life, Mike's book, The Genesis Quest, is available at all good bookshops now. Now it's time for our semi-regular climate hope or doom segment. Following all the recent catastrophic weather, I'm guessing we're talking doom today, Tim? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm afraid so. And this one might even be a double doom. Oh, that sounds very bad indeed. 
Yeah, so, I mean, as you hinted at, the weather has been particularly extreme recently. There was the heat dome over North America that featured, amongst other things, Canada breaking its highest temperature on record by about five degrees Celsius. Yeah, and then there was also the flooding in Germany and China. Yeah, and in London last week, uh, we had a, a heat wave, and then this week, some parts of the city have flooded too. Um, so I guess that's what we can just expect with global warming. Yes, yeah, so, so, yes and no. So, uh, but no in a bad way. So this is really the second part of the doom. So extreme weather events being this extreme actually came as a surprise to some um, climate scientists, many of whom say it's worse than their models have predicted. And so I guess that means climate change itself as a, as a whole thing could be worse than expected? Yeah, so that, that's what some of them are saying. But when, you, when the models break, that also gives you a chance to investigate why they broke and maybe we can improve our models and make better predictions. So our chief reporter, Adam Vaughan, looked into this this week and he spoke to Eric Fisher at ETH Zurich. And uh, his team had ran some simulation that did manage to predict such wild record-breaking temperatures. And he says the thing that's driving it and is perhaps missing from some other models is not the absolute amount of warming, but the speed in which it's changing. So is it just a case of tweaking a few parameters in the other models to account for that? So not quite. So uh, another factor that is part of this is that though our climate models have been really good at broad trends predicting the really local changes so that's local as in like the city level but also over um, shorter time periods predicting those local changes requires a greater degree of accuracy and that requires a lot more computing power and do we have any more computing power to sort of in our back pocket to dive into (laughs) So, I mean, there is there is a lot of computing power out there that we could utilise if there was a big global push for this. And one of the things that one of the people Adam spoke to, he spoke to uh, Tim Palmer at the University of Oxford. And he says what we need is a CERN for climate change, you know, like the big particle accelerator in Switzerland. Essentially, we could have an international supercomputer project for modelling climate change. And this could mean we could make better predictions for what the future has in store for us. Do we need that? Do we need to know exactly how bad the bad will be? I mean, maybe not. I mean, the the thing is, the broad picture is really well known and accurate. You know, we already know that the average temperature um, since pre-industrial levels has risen by 1.1 degrees. And we know that we need to take drastic action to slow it and halt that rise. And we need to mitigate, start mitigating the effects so that things like flooding and extreme heat becomes less of a problem. And we can do all of that now without any further predictions. We, we just really, really need to get on with it. Yeah, I think I think that's a kind of key point here, isn't it? Because I've seen a lot of uh, climate researchers and science journalists quite upset at how, how this has been reported in some places. There's been this line of scientists failed to predict just how bad climate change will be, <laughs> as if we haven't been warning for quite some time that it really will be very bad indeed. Yeah, unfortunately, because yeah. this is a podcast, you can't see me face palming. Right, <laughs> right. So, speaking of computers, Tim, you've got news for us now about a walking computer. I don't think I've ever used the phrase "walking computer" before. <laughs> yeah, this is such an incredible story. Like ev- every sentence in it is like mind blowing stuff, and it, it all begins with this really fun story of um, researchers at the University of California, San Francisco. And they um, noticed that the cells that they were actually trying to study kept getting eaten by predators that would scurry along the surface. And they sort of walked in this very strange insect-like gait. Well, what were they? So so they turned out to be this single-celled organism um, belonging to the genus Euplotes. 
And these things live in seawater and freshwater and they can swim, but they can also walk. And it's very much walk in inverted commas. They sort of scurry. And they have these leg-like things called Siri. Okay, well, let's call them legs for the, for the purposes of uh, the podcast. Um, what I think we all want to know is how many legs have they got? So the particular um, Euplotes the team were looking at, they had 14 legs, but this can vary depending on the, on the species. <laughs> nice. Um, so how does a single-celled organism control 14 legs? That sounds like something you actually need to think about. Yeah, well, absolutely. So th- this has been a mystery for biologists for around 100 years. And it's, mm. it, yeah, it's something that, that people couldn't really work out because these organisms, they don't have any nerves. They can't really coordinate their legs in the same way that an insect would. So to try and work it out, this research team that had all of the cells they were actually interested in eaten um, by these scrawly single-celled organisms, they decided to film them and try and really analyze what was going on. And so what did they find? So they found that the legs moved in lots of different patterns, um, but not random ones. So it's quite strange, but it seems that they can mix up the way they walk, but only in very specific ways. And so if you compare this to like a millipede, a millipede just repeats the same pattern again and again and again. So these are doing something very different. So why might they be doing that? So we don't know exactly, but one suggestion is that it could be a tactic to stop them getting stuck when they walk because they can't actually, you know, they don't have brains in any meaningful sense. So they can't really sense where they are walking and adjust their legs and whatever's at the end of their legs, their feet to compensate for the floor. So they mixing up this pattern might be a way to avoid them getting stuck in one particular place. Um, they sometimes do this when building robots, right? They add in a bit of variability to make sure that they don't get stuck in a corner. Yeah, absolutely. So a- anyone who's ever seen a robot walk, you can sort of tell that they often get stuck in silly situations. And one way to avoid that is if they vary their movement, that means that if one sort of series of steps is what's getting them in trouble, if they vary that, then maybe they're able to just step over that thing or or walk past it or get out of a bit of a sticky spot. But actually, this isn't the only way it's a bit like a robot. Um, Go on. Yeah. So it seems that this is where the walking computer part comes in. So the way that these legs are controlled is by a network of fibers called microtubules. And Mm -hmm. this this network seems to act a bit like a mechanical computer where one motion kicks off the next, which kicks off the next, producing this strange walking pattern for the 14 legs. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen, there are these walking mechanical sculptures called strand beasts. Um, yeah, I remember those, yeah. Yeah, they're, re- they're really cool. Like they're, you sort of have to really see them, but like the, they walk along the beach using wind power and it's, it's really like they convert what is a, a simple bit of energy, wind power, into this really complicated motion through a series of gears and connections. And the researchers say that this is a reasonable analogy for the mechanics of how these single-celled organisms walk with their 14 legs. That's very interesting. But why can we go from that to say it's something like a, a computer? In what way is this computer like? So the computers really are just like one thing kicks off something else, which kicks off something else, which kicks off something else. So the sort of computer that we're used to, this involves zeros and ones, and there's a sort of complicated code by which these get worked out. But if you look at the very earliest computers, things like Charles Babbage's difference engine, these are really mechanical computers. You know, you tend to, there tends to be a cog that you turn, and then there are a series of other cogs and wheels and things that all interact with each other to produce a calculation. But there's no, you know, a calculation is just 
in one of these machines, it's just turning wheels so that numbers appear on a, on a uh, sort of dial. But there's no reason why that, that same sort of movement couldn't be used to produce uh, leg movement or, or something else. Uh, amazing to think of it happening in these single-celled organisms. Um, we've got video of Euplotes, uh, as well as a photo of that ancient sponge fossil we talked about earlier, both on our website at newscientist.com. And we'll tweet them from at newscientistpod as well. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Mike Marshall and Leah Crane. And thanks to you for tuning in. To hear more about all these stories and many others, visit newscientist.com and you can get a 20% discount on accessing all the content of New Scientist magazine plus audio versions of the stories by going to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Yep, that's a great deal. Uh, that site again, it's newscientist.com slash pod 20. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to recommend us to all the science lovers in your life and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.